Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. morning. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Esther. This is what we've been studying throughout the summer. We'll continue it this morning. Esther chapter 7. It is going to get warm, so if you need to stand up and just kind of like do some kind of jig or something like that, feel free to do it. Wake yourself up, because here we go. Esther chapter 7. The author of the book writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, Fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Let the grace of your gospel shine forth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The 18th century pastor, Jonathan Edwards, is widely considered uh, one of the greatest American theologians. While his works are typically defined by the beauty of God, the grace of God, the glory of God, he's likely best known for a single sermon he preached once called, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His text was Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, which says this, Their foot shall slide in due time. 
And he makes a few observations that lead us into our text this morning. One is that the wicked, as Haman is here called, are, quote, always exposed to destruction as one who walks in slippery places is always exposed to a fall. And second, then, is that that fall could happen at any moment, any time. While third is that sinners needn't be helped to fall. No one has to push them down. They're on slippery ground, and so their own weight is sufficient for that fall. And lastly, the only reason this doesn't happen is because God's appointed time has not yet come. By a mercy He's not obligated to give us, He holds the wicked He keeps them out of hell every moment, though He's given them no promise to do so for a moment longer. And if He were then to just suddenly let them go, there'd be no stopping their fall to eternal perdition. Now, if you are a new visitor with us this morning, this is where I say, welcome to the mount. Edward's sermon actually came out of a desire not to frighten souls, but to awaken them. It came out of a passion to win souls to Jesus. Why take refuge in Christ if we sense no danger on account of our sins? And moment by moment, whether one realizes it or not, the lost soul is in everlasting peril, everlasting danger. In a large part, we're going to see the truth of that this morning, and the question is going to be, how are we, as a gathering, going to gain by it? So, Lord willing, we'll see it as we go. Let's just pick up in verse 1 and start by getting our providential footing here. Uh, Where has God brought us to this point in the story? Okay, a king has gotten drunk and mad. A queen has been banished. A harem has been gathered, and then out of that harem, Esther has compromised her faith to win the king's queenly favor. Right? Her dad was really her cousin, who is Mordecai, then saved the king's life. But Haman, the enemy of the Jews, got the reward that was due to Mordecai. And so Mordecai then, on newfound principles of faith, he refuses to bow to Haman, which led to the deviousness that resulted in the edict of death, assuring the extinction of the Jewish nation, which in theory would thwart the eternal plan of God in Christ to save a fallen world. But the Jews and Mordecai among them began then to fast, which drew the shallow empathy at first of the then shallow Esther, upon which Mordecai then exhorts her on behalf of the nation to action and to faith. And Esther, by the grace of God, is wonderfully and essentially converted. She may perish in doing what she's going to do, but she will go to this wicked king and then seek mercy for God's people because now they are really her people. And as she'd always been shrewd, her shrewdness then is now employed in doing her father's business. And so she goes to this king and she wins his favor and she puts on a feast for this king and for Haman. And when the king asks her her desire, she defers it. Remember? She defers revealing it to him 
to a second feast in order to better secure the king's assurances to the king's attendance. In the meantime, the exclusive dinner party with king and queen has the irrepressibly prideful Haman utilizing really the moonwalk, if you will, on his way home. Except then that he sees Mordecai. And seeing Mordecai, he sees a man who will not bow before him. And this, of course, bursts Haman's bubble. And so he whines about it and he wallows in self-pity until ding, light bulb, let's just put Mordecai to death. So he has gallows made, and he lays down to sleep, except he hardly can sleep for joy. So the sun peeks over the horizon, and its light reveals Haman standing in the king's court. We saw this a week ago. He's first in line for that king's business. But during the night, while most were sleeping, the king of glory was working. He kept the Persian king awake. Which led to reading, which led to the discovery of Mordecai's life-saving deed, which had never been rewarded. And this leads to Haman's somewhat comical humiliation. The king wants to honor a man. Haman believes with all his might that he is the man. So he spells out his dream scenario designed for the utmost honor, only to find he's not the man that the king had in mind. That man is Mordecai. The Jew. And that's the beginning of the end for Haman. His friends, his counselors, his wife, they know what he has long ignored. You cannot beat the Lord. And just then, there's a knock at the door. Providence has turned the tide, and then it's off to that second feast. And now we all take a collective breath. Okay. Recall, if the king shows up, his promise to give her whatever she asked is all but secured. Now, we know he shows up because we just read it. But Esther does not know this. So she spends the night, gets what little sleep she can, rises in the morning and spends the day preparing a feast literally on the edge of her seat. Is he going to show up? Ahasuerus is not exactly trustworthy. He's not dependable. As a man, he's unstable. As a king, who knows what native lust might interfere between then and now. And so, it's with a good deal of relief that we come to verse 1 and we read, the king went in to feast with Esther and Oya Haman's there too. But the king's presence is what matters. It's a work of God. Well, what do you mean? That's kind of the point of Esther. Seen here yet again. People are freely and responsibly acting and in doing so are yet working out the perfect and sovereign plan of God in the world. And what's more is that in recognition of his total sovereignty, this Jewish nation has now given themselves earnestly to prayer. Right? They, they cast their cares upon the governor of every atom existing in the entire cosmos, a governor who cares and acts 
on behalf of his people. What that means, as we saw two weeks ago, is that every act of grace and kindness and mercy this evil king displays to Esther has a believing prayer and a gracious answer from God behind it. Amazing. Underneath it, supporting it, bringing it about. Without which, we're led to believe things really could have gone the other way. Beloved, prayer is the engine God uses to move the world for His glory. It's certainly the engine He uses to move this king, ultimately, to save the world. Remember, ethnically speaking, Jesus is Jewish. You cut off the Jewish nation, there's no Jesus. This is important. I just want to ask us this morning, are we Believing in prayer. Are we believing in prayer? Are we engaging in believing prayer? And are we doing it together? Because that's what's been going on in Esther. I would love to see, uh, Corey mentioned it at the beginning, our little prayer time here is 1010 to 1040 in the back building here. I'd love to see that time just maxed out. Maybe we need to wear masks, but masked, ma- maxed out. So we maybe have to even split the room or something. You know, some go upstairs and some go downstairs, and we would see the world moved from within these walls for the sake of the kingdom of our God. You say, oh, I don't know. I'm not all that gifted. I'm not all that skilled. I'm not a people person. I'm not some great orator. Okay, but listen, can you pray? Who can't pray and realize that by a little true faith, God is happy to do massive things? Mustard seed faith moves mountains, not because it is big, but because it trusts in Him who is big. It lays hold of an almighty King who delights to do almighty things for the sake of his people. Well, I'd like to go on there, but let's move on. The king has arrived, and this is the moment we've been waiting on, right? It's Esther's faith going public. You say, hasn't she already done that? The answer is yes, to a point. God, of course, knows her faith. Her people now have seen her faith, which is to say that the publicity of her faith and visibility as one of God's people has stayed to this point relatively cozy. God and her people. But now, now, it's going to go before her Persian husband, who happens to be a notoriously cruel, quick-tempered, and violent man, and oh, by the way, he just set his stamp upon the genocide of an entire people group, her people group, no less, as one would set their stamp on exterminating mosquitoes or ants. Yes, please, and thank you. No questions asked. Why wouldn't I do that? 
See, there's a reason she still has to feel compelled to ask for her life. And about that. Steps of faith, which is what we're seeing here, taken upon the path of prayer in the sure hope of grace, may not always end in our deliverance. As with our Lord and the prophets and all the apostles and countless Christians since, even to our own day, it may end in martyrdom. That's the cost of doing God's bidding in this world. That's the cost of following Christ. It's just that true faith takes it that even where our lives are lost for Him, there, right there, it's also found. What does that look like for you and me today? You may not ever come before a pagan king with a sword in his hand. It may just be an argumentative child or an antagonistic student or an intolerant boss or maybe it's a fleshly friend or a hot-headed spouse or a hard-hearted professor or perhaps someday it could be a pagan king with a sword in his hand. Will you trust the Lord, know His presence, take the risk, and speak up for Christ then? Will you publicly identify with God and His people when that is not the comfortable thing to do? There are many today who are walking away because the heat is being turned up. The climate is nicer at a distance from Christ and from His bride Things are are cozier in the world if I can just have sort of a loose relationship with Jesus. I just want you to hear this morning, the thing is, Jesus will have none of that kind of relationship. Whoever denies me before men, what's the other side of that? I also will deny them before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, he says. You see, Jesus is not blind to the cost at all. He just says, we can't be blind to the treasure. And Esther's not. She used to be, but now she's not. She sees the treasure We just say amazing grace really is amazing. Well, the king asked for her request a third time now. It is the moment of truth. Whom shall Esther fear? Whom shall Esther treasure? The uh, the answer comes with great skill here. Everything she says is aimed at the king's heart. She's warmer now than she was the first time. She again leaves the ball in his court, honors him. And then she states her wish that she might live, which has to open the king's eyes, right? Like, why does my queen feel like she's in peril here? But before he can even ask her about that, she binds her destiny to the destiny of her people. 
my life for my wish, my people for my request. Listen, friends, we'll see it more, but it matters to what people you belong. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ alone, all are made alive. Do you belong to the true people of God? And is that clear? Is that clear? I might ask, are you a part of God's visible people? Which we call a local church. See how Esther overcame her fear. It's as Timothy Cain says. She's, quote, taken Mordecai's words to heart and has come to believe that the safest place for her in all the world is in identification with God's people. Safer than the palace. Safer than being the wife of the most powerful man in the world. Safer than all is being one of God's people. Why? Because it means you're one of God's. So that, as risky as steps of faith may temporarily turn out to be, it's all glory for you in the end. Who cares about a king? We're all going to have to do with God. Are we in a good spot with Him? Have we trusted in Christ? Is, it, is that evident in our lives? Do we love the people of God? Because by Christ, the people of God, they're the ones that are going to come out on top when all is said and done. And so I'm going to want to be a public part of His beloved bride. My assurance of salvation like Esther's, is aided by the assembly of the redeemed and my relationship to her, to, to you, as she, as you, belong to Jesus. Back to Esther then. See how she ties her destiny to her people's destiny and then their destiny to the king's destiny. She lets him in on what seems to be news to him. How they've been sold, not into slavery, but into extinction, extermination. If it were only slavery, she says, and not genocide, she would have been silent. But she can't be silent because it would damage and hurt the king. It would be a massive loss to Ahasuerus. And therefore, whoever has devised this evil plot has sought the king's downfall. That's what she's doing. That's not hyperbole either. Esther is his wife. And Mordecai has saved his life. Okay? Church, if we were suddenly removed from the world, would the loss be noticeable? Even if they hate us, would the ungodly then sense something of the truth that we were actually the salt and light of the world all along? Would they step back and say, you know, that was the very community of God that held it all together and kept it from bursting into an all-out hell on earth? Are we of good service to our society? It's not all big things, like speaking out against genocide. 
In fact, usually it's the sum of a lot of smaller things. Holding a door open, hosting the needy, tending a widow, doing good for evil, cups of cold water in Jesus' name. It's showing and sharing Jesus. No matter how how small the, the thing done is, that is huge. Well, Esther's done it. How will the king respond? Was there ever any doubt how the king would respond? Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And so we come to Haman revealed. And I put it that way because today, while the king knows Haman, he appears to be shocked by this revelation. And some part of that is that Haman, if you recall, has been less than forthright with the king. So I want us to hear this this morning. Our sins will always find us out. God is not mocked. Haman may think he's done his deeds in secret, but God knows, and oh, by the way, God has his secrets too. Queen Esther, Haman did not know, is Jewish. Esther has been raised up by God for such a time as this. She is God's trump card. So the king asked who and where, and she's right there to say the who is wicked Haman. And thus, the where, why? He's right here. And I'm pretty sure Haman just choked on his royal wine. Haman's been unmasked. I'm sure you've been there. I'm supposed to be counting calories or consuming the right kind of calories or something like that. But I bought a a nice mocha for myself the other day and I might have waited until my accountability partner was putting a child to bed to enjoy it. When, alas, Jenny came down earlier than expected and caught me red-handed. I don't think I needed to repent. But I was a little embarrassed about being found out. It wasn't sin, I don't think. But it applies to sin. It's always best to live in the light. Super hard. But always best. Esther has come to the light. But the light now has come to Haman. What she did willingly as a sinner saved just happened to him when he least expected it as a sinner endangered. Our sin will find us out. It will come home to roost. Apart from Christ, our foot shall slide in due time. And that's why it's critical that we make our home in Jesus and build our lives upon the rock of His Word. And here the call must be to honesty. It's unbecoming of a Christ follower. It's unbecoming of a truly Christian church to be led by a lust for self-exaltation and self-satisfaction to wheel and deal in the shadows. 
like Haman. He's lied. He's deceived. He's slyly bartered and blackmailed and plotted. He thought in secret. But dark is his light to God. And like a popple. Do you guys remember popples? If you're over 35, you might. Okay? You'd cram them into a ball of hiding, you know? And then you'd turn them inside out. You'd flip them inside out, and you would see the, the popple, the little creature, whatever the thing was. Some kind of bear-like marsupial thing. I don't know. So God is going to take what we have hidden, and he's going to flip it all out. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to put it on display so it can be seen. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, here's the word he uses, nothing covered up will remain so. Nothing. What's been said in the dark will be heard in the light, he says. What's been whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus will judge the secrets of men, the Apostle Paul says. I believe that's Romans 2.16. So, man, best we can then, as those who have been brought out of darkness and into His marvelous light, let's learn either by an open heart or a mature tongue to have no secrets. Or as one put it, Derek Prime Quote, let's so live that we may have nothing secret of which to be ashamed. To live to the contrary is to live as if our king was not in the room. But he is. Well, Haman's wanted to be the man. Just not like this. Esther has spotlighted him and he is terrified. Rightly so. This king had the eldest son of a military benefactor cut in half because the father asked that his son be released from duty in order to preserve the family line. This particular father had funded the king's war with Greece to a great extent. He had four other sons who were actually in the army. He goes to Ahasuerus and says, spare me just this one. And Ahasuerus says, no, cut him in half with a sword. That's his kingdom. What might he do to Haman? Well, he walks to the garden, not to cool off. He's enraged with a wine-filled wrath against him, whose name, remember, sounds like wrath. And so, in his absence, if it was still in doubt, Haman ironically seals his fate. Friends, I want you to see here how earnestly this man seeks mercy under the discovery of his sin and its certain consequences. How he pursues leniency as if his life depends on it because it does depend on it. And see then how he seeks that from a Jewish woman who only a moment before he had by his treachery unknowingly lined up for the slaughter. He of no mercy falls by her side and begs her for mercy. Friends, 
If this great man so trembled before that cup of wrath, how all unbelieving, and maybe even the believing, ought to tremble before the cup that brought the Son of God to a blood-sweating distress and agony. The just wrath of God is still the unbelievers to suffer this moment. So again in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives some really hard words. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body like a Ahasuerus. And after that, because there is an after that, have nothing more that they can do. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed, after he has taken life, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, relief is on the way. But let's not numb ourselves to how great the relief is by watering down or all out washing hell away. Only the blood of Christ can do that. Amen. See how for all of his resources, Haman's wits, Haman's cash, Haman's sons, Haman's rank, none of that can save him from the wrath of this pauper king. Nothing that is, but Esther. But her pity does not interpose. She's silent. I have half a mind to think it's because smart as she is, she discerns something very important, something we need to hear, how even now Haman is insincere. His grief is a worldly Grief. He does not hate his sin. He hates that he got caught in his sin. He does not hate his sin. He hates the consequences of his sin. His tears are Esau's tears. Haman here is not repenting. He's just regretting. He's not after forgiveness. He just doesn't want to die. Even here, Haman still loves himself supremely. Man pride and unbelief. Another fine theory is that Esther is fulfilling another role that will be typical of Jesus. She's not just a savior, she is also a judge. She intercedes for her people, that's what she's doing but she does not intercede for their enemies. John 17, go read that a little bit later this afternoon. At any rate, when Esther could speak, she's silent. And then the king returns. And what he sees in verse 8 is, as I said, what seals Haman's fate as a condemned man. Right? There's a, there was a palace rule if you were a man besides the king, you were not allowed to come within seven steps 
of any woman in the harem, least of all the queen. And Haman is sprawled out on the couch where the queen is reclining. And that's that. Like, the volcanic king erupts with boiling hot lava. All is working against Haman now. This man who cares nothing about the dignity of women is suddenly the poster child for the dignity of Esther. And thing is, Haman's not even after Esther like that. So that even the king's rashness, which Haman leveraged before, is now unleashed against him. So, the charge comes, and no sooner does it sound, but Haman's head is bagged, his face is covered, and then some guy named Harbona, not a likely friend of Haman, by what he says, snaps his finger and says, I got an idea. This wretch, Haman, prepared gallows for your savior, Mordecai. What do you think, king? Wink, wink. And Ahasuerus is like, yeah, I like it. Hang him on that. And in verse 10, the author takes care to note the poetic justice. It says, they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then... Don't miss it. The wrath of the king abated. It was satisfied. And we're left to see that in the end, apart from Christ, our sins will not only find us out, our sins will take us out. There will be no doubt it's what we deserve There'll be no doubt it's what we've contrived for ourselves. There'll be no doubt that it was our own doing. In the end, Haman made the gallows on which he died. And his own sin led him to it. Indeed, pride goes before the fall. A haughty spirit goes before destruction. Haman becomes here the proverb, a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. The comfort, yes, the comfort for us, beloved, is that his demise signals our salvation in a way. The enemies of God and his people will not win in the end. We will be saved at last. And our enemies will be condemned at last in the day that God's justice rolls down like water. Right? It is a strange sentiment we find throughout the Scriptures that while we're to love our enemies and labor for their salvation, God will be praised and we will eventually praise Him for setting all things right and making all things new, which invariably involves the destruction of the wicked. Along these lines, dear unbeliever, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus before it's too late to do so. Your foot shall slide in due time. God is not obligated to hold you up a second longer. You're living on mere mercy. 
and why. Perhaps I hope that you might hear what I'm about to say and be saved this very hour. If you've been unmasked this morning, don't try to cover it up again. Don't don't fight against it. Don't run like Adam and Eve to cover up with perishable things. You cannot wash away your sins. Nothing of you can save you from the cup of God's wrath. That's due you. It's your own doing. But, fall on Jesus Christ. Beg Him for mercy. Judgment is coming But today is still the day of salvation. Friend, there is not a soul in the gospel. As I was telling uh, Pastor George just the other day. There is not a soul in the gospels that kneeling earnestly before Jesus ever got up without rejoicing in mercy received from Jesus. Ultimately because of the cross. What Haman, this wretch, suffered He meant for Mordecai the Savior. Though in truth, Mordecai was no better than Haman. And neither is the best of us here this morning. What Jesus did was suffer what was ours to suffer. The Savior in place of the sinner. We Hamans were being led by sin to our eternal doom and Jesus came alongside and said, I got this. You're free to go. And then he too, in front of the cross, went silent. But not for justice. He went silent silent as the Lamb of God before its shears is silent. He went silent as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. He went silent as our substitute. Remember, his cross was Barabbas's cross. Remember, his cross was your cross and it was my cross and it was the cross of billions more and bearing it, paying our sin penalty, God's wrath was abated. Justice was satisfied such that all that's left for anyone Whoever cries out as the tax collector once did, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. All that's left for you is a righted relationship with God. What does Jesus himself say? That such a one as that goes home justified. Oh friend, believe it. Believe the gospel this morning. Hope in Jesus. And you will be saved. If there's any kind of stirring like that this morning, please don't go out the door without coming and talking to me or anyone else here who would love to talk to you more about Jesus. Beloved, even while we learn to rejoice in the promise of divine justice, let us do all we can to pull people back from suffering it. We're not Esther. Meaning, we're not a Jewish Persian queen tasked by God and office to wield the power of the sword in favor of God's geopolitical people around the year 500 B.C. We're the people of Jesus tasked by God and grace 
to wield the power of the gospel. Yes, for doing real justice in the world, but mainly for seeing sinners come to place their trust in Christ. Are we being true to that office? Charles Spurgeon exhorts us, If sinners be damned, at least let them have to leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. As a church, let's be that kind of support for the unbelieving on the slippery slopes. Here's how one said it. I think it's a good summary, and we'll close with it. Not a single risk of sin is worth the cost of sin. But responding to and sharing the gospel are worth risking it all. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. And we do pray that You would be glorified in helping us perhaps to trust in Christ for the first time, to be born again, to become a believer, a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Or, if we are already that, by Your grace and Your mercy, would You continue, please, to encourage our hearts in the Gospel. Continue, please, to make us bold for your sake. Help us to love your people and help us to be passionate about seeing the lost come to know you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.